0: Well, we resume our study in First Peter, and today our text is verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1, which are the closing words of Peter's opening doxology, a doxology which begins in verse 3 and concludes in verse 10 and is all one sentence in the original Greek. Peter, as you remember, addresses his epistle to Christians, both Jew and Gentile, who are scattered from home. Facing severe trials because of their faith in Christ, some of them are discouraged. Wouldn't you be? If you had forsaken all to follow Christ and are now deprived of some of the basic necessities of life, wouldn't you be discouraged? If you left father and mother, sister and brother, home and lands for Christ's sake and the Gospels, and had not as yet received a comparable return, much less and hundredfold in this life wouldn't you tend to be discouraged and so peter is writing among other things to encourage these discouraged saints and he is showing them that the spiritual blessings which they enjoy are far greater than anything envisioned by the old testament prophets and even by the angels and in our text today there are three great truths that are designed to lift your spirit, to strengthen your soul in the Lord. And they are the following. Number one, if you are a Christian, you are heirs of an accomplished salvation. Number two, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you are the recipient of new covenant fulfillments. And number three, if you are a born-again child of God, you are the objects of intense angelic interest. We are heirs of an accomplished salvation. Peter writes in chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. If you are a child of God, dear friend, remember that you are an heir of an accomplished salvation of this salvation. The prophets have inquired of this salvation. And this salvation is referring, of course, to what Peter has already told us about salvation in the first nine verses of his epistle. Peter is saying, let The world glory in its temporary pleasures, but you have something which is far better. You have something which is lasting. You have a salvation which is beyond description. And what is that salvation like? And this will be by way of review as we dip back into some of the verses that we have looked at previously. But of course, most of that was in September and October. And so it's good to remind ourselves what has gone before. And so let us consider five aspects of this salvation which ought to encourage the heart of every believer. Number one, remember that your salvation was planned in the eternal counsels of God. Verse 1 says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. This tells us that our salvation was planned in the eternal counsels of God. What you have experienced that you call salvation is no passing fancy. It is no fleeting happenstance. It is not, if it is genuine, it is not merely some passing emotion that has overcome you for a while. No, this is something that was planned by Almighty God before He created the universe. As Pastor Latour wrote, Before He formed the universe from nothing, and in His image made the human race, the triune God composed redemption story, to satisfy His righteousness through grace. God planned this salvation before He created the universe. And therefore, if you are a child of God, you are an heir of salvation, chosen according to the foreordination of a sovereign God. If you are a Christian today, you are a Christian because you were chosen by God to be His own before time began. What an awesome truth. What a humbling truth. What do a few temporary trials mean in the face of truths like this planned in the eternal counsels of God, but secondly, accomplished by the finished work of Christ? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that follows verse 2 that tells us that we were chosen by the foreknowledge of God for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, not only was our salvation planned in eternity, but it has been accomplished in time exactly according to God's perfect plan. And from our vantage point, it has now been accomplished. By the coming of Christ, by His perfect life, by His death upon the cross, by His resurrection from the dead, which now is 2,000 years ago, it has been accomplished. When Christ said upon the cross, it is finished. It was finished. And therefore, that salvation planned in the eternal counsels of God before the world began, has now been accomplished finally and fully by Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross of Calvary and rose again from the dead. Christ lived to earn a substitutionary righteousness. Christ died to pay a substitutionary penalty. Christ arose to guarantee our life. Why didn't Christ just come into the world the day of His crucifixion and die on the cross if all that was necessary was His death? Well, because that's not all that was necessary. His death pays the penalty for our guilt, but His life of righteousness gives us the imputed righteousness which we need. In other words, what God demanded of us in a perfect obedience to his law, and none of us have fulfilled, Jesus Christ became a man in order to live that perfect life, first of all, and then to die that ignominious death, secondly, and then to rise from the grave to demonstrate his power over sin and over death. And he did that so that when we believe in Christ, his earned righteousness might be Transferred to our account, and his vicarious death might also be applied to our sinful record, and therefore we might have a perfect salvation. You see, Christ. (laughs) is the eternally righteous Son of God. He has always been righteous. He didn't have to live upon the earth in order to become righteous. He is and always has been and always will be perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. He is God, but He became a man and lived a man's life of righteousness. Because we are men and women who have that very required righteousness of us. And we have failed miserably. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. No, not one. But he is, he was, and he fulfilled the law's demand. And he resisted every temptation. And he lived like we should have lived. And then in grace he freely offers his perfect righteousness to believers In grace, He freely offers His sacrifice upon the cross as the penalty for the sin of all believing sinners. And in rising from the dead, He demonstrates that God the Father has accepted His perfect righteousness and His substitutionary death upon the cross and that He has the power over sin and death. He has the power to grant eternal life. He has the power to resurrect sinners under the sentence of condemnation to eternal life and glory. He has that power as demonstrated By his rising from the dead. And in rising from the dead, he accomplished everything that is necessary for our salvation. What a salvation. Planned in the eternal counsels of God. Accomplished by the finished work of Christ upon the cross. But number three, affected by the power and mercy of God. Blessed, verse three again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has begotten us again. Our salvation. Did not come about by human ability. Or desire. But by divine intervention. God. Blessed God. The father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Merciful God. Who is abundant in mercy has begotten us again. He made us alive, we who were dead in trespasses and in sins. He gave us life. He enabled us to respond to the truth of the gospel, we who were blind and deaf to all the entreaties of God's word and of God's messengers. He did that for us. He accomplished what we could never accomplish because In our sinful condition, we were dead, deaf, blind, unable. But God, in mercy, came to our rescue and provided in Christ and effected in the power of His Spirit what we needed and did not have in ourselves. And therefore, what the Father planned in eternity past and what the Son accomplished 2,000 years ago with His life and death upon the cross The Holy Spirit has now and is now effecting in the lives of all of God's elect. And if you are a child of God today, that salvation has been effected in your life by the power and mercy of God. Praise God! What great salvation! How could we be discouraged? Number four, the salvation is eventuating in an eternal inheritance. Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The salvation planned by God, accomplished by Christ, affected by God the Holy Spirit, cannot be damaged. It cannot be destroyed. It will be fully realized when Christ returns. And at that time, we will see that it includes full and final redemption of our body, of our soul, of all of us, redeemed and restored from Adam's ruined race, redeemed and restored, and made better than Adam ever was in the Garden of Eden And that eternal inheritance is yet ahead. We haven't received the fullness of it yet. It is yet ahead, but we see glimpses of it now, and we know that it is being preserved. It cannot be damaged. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be diminished. It's reserved in heaven For those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. What a great salvation. This is the salvation that Peter's talking about. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. And number five, this salvation is preserved by the omnipotence of Almighty God. Kept by the power of God. Verse five tells us who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last time. If you are a child of God, though you may fail and fall, no, I shouldn't say may, though you will fail and falter and stumble and pull away at times, you are kept by the power of God through faith, not kept by your own intense desires, not kept by your own free will, though God is. Exercises our will to desire to follow him, and our will is very much involved. But, dear friends, that's not the key. You are not kept by your will, you are kept by the power of God through faith. Now, that's the kind of salvation that Peter's talking about. That's a pretty good salvation, isn't it? And so, if you are a child of God, you are heirs of an accomplished salvation. But number two, you are recipients of new covenant fulfillments. And in some ways, this is reinforcing what perhaps was said in our first point. But Peter makes a great point to demonstrate the desire of the Old Testament prophets to understand and to experience what we have and they did not have and could not have. Listen again as I read verses 10 through 12. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. If you are a child of God, you are a recipient of new covenant fulfillments. Now, make no mistake about it. Old Testament believers share in the very same salvation that we do. Salvation is always and only by the blood of Jesus Christ, whether Old Covenant or New Covenant. Salvation is always and only by grace through faith, whether Old Covenant or New Covenant. And furthermore, God's salvation redeems one united and restored people unto God, all one body, we. That's very true. But as Peter points out in our text today, Old Testament believers did not experience the same level of understanding nor fulfillment which is our experience today. They were searching for that salvation which would come to you. Verse 10. They were talking about a salvation that was not to themselves but to us. Verse 12. And in this we learn that the New Testament fulfillments are a great advance over the Old Testament promises. It is true that salvation has always and only been by the blood of Christ. But old covenant believers didn't see that as clearly as we do. In fact, sometimes that was difficult to discern as they only saw it dimly in the blood of bulls and goats and sheep, which had to be continually sacrificed again and again and again and again. And though... True believers understood that salvation could never be accomplished by the blood of bulls and goats, yet they had not seen the fulfillment. They had not seen the Lamb of God, who once and for all would take away the sin of the world. They longed to see Him. They longed for that fulfillment. They longed to understand this more fully, but they could not. Because God's providence had placed them in a different period of history where these things were not so plain. And though salvation has always and only been by grace through faith, yet Old Covenant believers, as we know, were kept under governors and tutors until Christ. And they didn't have the freedom that we have, and they didn't have the full understanding of grace that we have. Salvation has always been by grace through faith, but it was not so plain to them. It did not seem so gracious to them, for they were hemmed up. in those 600 requirements of the Mosaic regulation. And it was difficult at times for them to understand the graciousness of this wonderful salvation affected by Jesus Christ. And though salvation redeems one united and restored people of God, it was difficult for those old covenant believers to understand the glories of the church, particularly Gentile inclusion, without circumcision, without feast days, without dietary regulations. How can this be? We see glimpses of this spoken about in the Old Testament scriptures, but how can this be? What does this mean? And so they realized they were talking about aspects of salvation that would come to us. They were talking about salvation that was not to themselves, but to us. Yes, the same salvation to them, but the fulfillment of it, the fullness of it, the understanding of it, not to themselves, but to us. And so Old Testament believers did not experience the same understanding. And did not experience the same fulfillment which we enjoy today. The Old Testament prophets longed to understand what we have today. And what we all too often take for granted. Searching, verse 11 tells us, what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating. When he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. And the glories that would follow. Searching. They desired to know the time of the Messiah's advent, searching what manner of time. They knew that a Messiah must come. The scriptures told them that, but they longed to know when he would come, and they did not know. They desired to understand the circumstances of his life and his accomplishments upon the earth, searching what what circumstances, what, what, uh, what are the details of this life, of this one who is coming? When is he coming, and what will he be like? And what, what's going to happen in his life? And who is his identity? And, and how does all, all this come together? All of these prophecies and predictions, which some of which seem contradictory, but we know they're not. And it's very difficult to pull them all together. And they were searching and longing to know, very much like many of the prophecies that refer to his second coming, that we have difficulty pulling together now, details that sometimes seem to be contradictory. And we long to know, how are all these things going to be pulled together? They will be perfectly just like all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the first coming of Messiah, will be or were already pulled together perfectly in the coming of Christ. But they couldn't see that. But they longed to. They desired to so greatly. They desired to understand the meaning of his sufferings, which we have the privilege of understanding today. When they testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, they talked about it, They wrote about it, but they did not understand very much about it. They looked into the scriptures. They went clear back to the book of Genesis, no doubt. And they saw that in that first proclamation of the gospel, that there would be a bruising of the heel of the woman's child, the Messiah, who was going to come and be the Savior. That was his suffering. And yet the glories that shall follow, they saw that he would crush the serpent's head. There you have it. The sufferings and the glory right there in the very first proclamation of the gospel. And right on through the Old Testament scriptures, more prophecies than we could begin to examine. Psalm 22 that begins with these famous words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Where have you heard those words before? They were spoken by Christ upon the cross. But they were recorded by David, one of the prophets of God, hundreds of years before Christ came. And all throughout Psalm 22, you will find a number of descriptions of the suffering of Messiah. Well, they read those, they searched those, they studied those, and they longed to understand what does all this mean? They came to Isaiah 53, and no doubt they were greatly troubled and perplexed. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed, and so forth. And they wondered, what does this mean? What are these sufferings? Why these sufferings? How does all of this relate together? And they were extremely puzzled, though they longed to know the meaning of his sufferings. But we know that. We have that privilege. We understand that today. And they longed to understand the nature of his glories, the glories that would follow. They read in Psalm 2 about the greatness of of the king, the Messiah, who would come. And they read in Psalm 110 that... God Jehovah said to his son, this day have I begotten you and you are my, my son and, and are sitting upon the throne. And they scratched their heads in puzzlement. What does all this mean and how do we understand all this? They read Isaiah's prophecy. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government, there shall be no end. And they looked at that and they said, How can you pull these things together? The suffering Messiah is crying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the reigning Messiah, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and the governments of the entire universe rest upon His shoulder. We know it's true. We know it's wonderful. But we do not understand it. They longed to understand it, how greatly they desired to know these things. And yet we have these things today, and I'm afraid many of us don't even value such wonderful truths. To us it has become just common knowledge, common understanding. Yes, I've heard that before. So what? So what? you are a child of God, you are recipients of new covenant fulfillments that thousands of God's choice, suffering, saints under the old covenant longed to understand and experience. And you understand them and you have experienced them all by the grace of God. How privileged are we? But then number three, if you are a child of God, you are the object of intense angelic interest. Things which angels desire to look into. Those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. And this becomes more mysterious yet. This is the capstone, actually, of Peter's Exaltation of the greatness of God's salvation. Not only is it a salvation that the Old Testament saints long to understand, but this is a salvation that God's holy angels long to understand. Let us review for a moment the nature and purpose of angels. Angels are a vast company of spirit beings of superior intelligence, highly organized, who are created to serve God. You say superior intelligence to whom? Superior intelligence to us. Many of them, as we know, rebelled following Satan, who was at one time the highest archangel and who coveted the position of God and desired to take God off his throne. And so a great company of angels rebelled and followed Satan in their sin and rebellion against God. And thus there are actually two classes now of angels, the holy angels and the sinful angels that we call demons, all spirit beings of high intelligence, highly organized, ordered, and ranked, now one company serving Almighty God, as they were created to serve, and the other company who are serving Satan and are busying themselves trying to overthrow God and to thwart everything that God has planned and designed, and therefore they become the intense enemies of the people of God, loved by God, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Anyone who is so favored by God, you can be sure, is the object of the intense hatred of the fallen angels. Furthermore, it is true that there is no salvation for fallen angels, and the angels know that. This great company of angels created in holiness and perfection and superior intelligence and who knew Almighty God by, by close proximity, personal experience, being holy, they could come into the very presence of God, and yet in spite of that, they chose to rebel against Him And there is no salvation for these angels. Once having rebelled against God, they sealed their fate. They are going to eternal perdition. And this is a demonstration of God's righteousness. The holy God banishing rebels to their just desert. The holy God justly punishing those who rebelled against their maker, the one to whom they owed their existence, and to a loving, kind, benevolent, gracious God who has never wronged them in any way, and they rebelled against Him. What is their just fate? It is the eternal lake of fire. And God's perfect justice and righteousness is clearly seen in that. But what is amazing is that in the case of rebellious Sons of Adam, human beings created in the image of God of high intelligence and also created for the purpose of serving God, created with the ability to commune with God, who also rebelled and sinned against Him and deserved the very same fate as all of the fallen angels. God has in grace effected a plan of redemption whereby His righteous justice is in no way violated. And yet in mercy and love, he rescues a vast company of Adam's fallen race unto himself, redeems us out of our sin, saves us from ourselves, saves us from our own sinful rebellion, and demonstrates his grace. No such grace shown to the angels, and they know that. Furthermore, the holy angels know God's design to redeem this vast portion of Adam's fallen race, and they delight to assist in this work as they delight to assist in every work of God that they are given opportunity to participate in. And so it's not surprising that at the birth of Christ we find great angelic activity. And throughout the lifetime of Christ we find great angelic activity as the angels who ministered to him after his temptation in the wilderness. And at the resurrection of Christ we find great angelic activity for they are hovering around their maker and they are peering into this amazing work of redemption which God is effecting in the lives of fallen Sinners. But they are perplexed in trying to understand the full nature of human redemption. These angels desire to look into things which angels desire to look into. A word which means strong interest or craving. Desire to look into. The idea is to bend over to examine more closely. They are looking, peering, studying, like looking at a microscope. They are studying with the most intense interest possible what is going on in this work of saving sinners. They are peeking in as an outsider looks in a window, unobserved by those who are inside, In that way, the angels are peeking into the work of redemption as outsiders who long to understand more fully what God is doing in the lives of His redeemed people. But you see, they have not experienced divine salvation. They are holy angels. They do not need salvation. Nor have they experienced such great mercy and grace as we who are the redeemed children of God have experienced because, again, as holy angels, they have not needed such great mercy and grace. They know God to be gracious and loving and kind. They know that to be true. But the depths of mercy, the greatness of grace, the magnitude of the love which God has poured out upon sinning human beings, angels have not experienced, cannot understand, and frankly, I think, wonder why God would do such a thing as that. But if God does it, it's good. They delight in his doing it, and they delight to be involved in it. But they are intensely puzzled. Such great mercy, such great grace, such great wisdom, such great power, all brought to bear upon such undeserving creatures. And angels are therefore more interested in salvation than men are, how great, how wonderful this salvation must be if beings like angels have such an interest in the redemption of mankind. And so what is Peter saying to discourage saints? He's saying if you are the recipient of a grace like this, how can you be discouraged? If you are the heir to glory such as this, how can you be unhappy? If you have received fulfillment of salvation like this that the Old Testament prophets longed to understand, and you have come into the fulfillment of it, how can you possibly complain? If you are the object of divine involvement where God has sent His Spirit from heaven to quicken you to life and to bring you by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, how can you possibly be discouraged? If you are having operating within your soul a salvation which totally amazes the angels, and they desire to understand it and cannot, then why should you be discouraged? All of this that Peter has described in salvation and far more is mine, is yours, through faith in Jesus Christ. I am an heir of this salvation, not because I'm rich, though now I am And that will be more clear in the ages to come. And not because I'm smart, though now I am beginning to have some real wisdom and understanding, which will continue to grow in the ages to come. And not because I'm good, far from it, I am bad and deserving of eternal condemnation. Though in Christ I have become righteous. And in the work of sanctification by the Spirit of God, I am beginning, just beginning, to become a little bit Christ-like and will continue that process into the future. Oh, what a great salvation, all of which is mine through Christ. Not because I'm worthy, I'm not. It's because He is worthy. And He has qualified me to receive these blessings in the way that we have already described. This salvation is all because of God's grace. I'm a debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercies, I sing. And therefore, if I am the recipient of a salvation like this, how could I ever doubt the love of God? Oh, sure, there are trials, there are difficulties. We we face them all the time. But why do they cause us to doubt the love of God? If you have all this, how could you ever doubt God's love for you? If I am the recipient of salvation like this, how could I ever question God's wisdom? Well, there are many things I don't understand. And I often don't understand what God is doing and why. But when I see what God in His wisdom has already effected in this great redemption, how could I ever question that He is the eternally wise God? Glory be His name. Having a salvation like this, how could I ever complain about my circumstances? How could I ever look at those around me and say, but look at Him, but look at Him. <laughs> look at what you ought to have. Look at what you deserve. Look at where you ought to be. And then begin to praise God eternally for what His grace has bestowed upon you and me undeserving. And if you are here this morning and do not know yourself to be a recipient of such grace with salvation as great and gracious as this, why do you not forsake all else in order to obtain Christ? What do you have that compares to this? What do you desire that is better than this? What do you have that you would rather hold on to than to have Christ? Why don't you sell all you have and buy the field and obtain the great pearl, which is Christ and the salvation which comes in him. Leave your rags behind. Leave your sins behind. Leave that which is driving you to eternal destruction behind. And by faith, reach up and receive the salvation which is poured out graciously in mercy upon all those who will turn from sin and self in order to receive Christ. Why would you be left outside the gates of a salvation as wonderful as this? Shall we pray? Gracious God, how kind are all your ways to me. I was at enmity with you. I would still be your enemy if you had not bridged the gap, if you had not broken down the walls of my resistance, if you had not entered my darkened soul, if you had not brought me to Jesus Christ tenderly, effectively, persistently by the cords of love and by the operations of grace. Lord, what you have done for me, you have done for Many, if not most, of those who are in this room today, we give you praise, O Lord. You have done this for literally millions of sinners down through the centuries and are continuing to call sinners unto yourself. What a gracious God you are. Who is a pardoning God like you? Why do you suffer rebels like we are to come into your presence and to be made your sons? Why would you want us around? Oh, Lord God, we do not understand, but we delight in such great salvation, and we bow in humble adoration and faith and love. Oh, Lord, forgive us for our complaining spirit. Forgive us for our doubts. Forgive us, O oh, Lord, for ever questioning you in any way. We once again commit our lives to you fully. Completely, unreservedly, we are nothing, we are we are worth nothing to you, but O oh Lord, take us, we pray, and make us what we are not, and what only your grace can make us to be, we ask it in Jesus name, amen.